This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Father Ambrose Christ, a Norbertine priest from St. Michael's Abbey in Orange County, California. Father Ambrose entered the monastery in 2000, made solemn profession in 2006, and was ordained a priest in 2008. He finished his priestly studies in Rome with pontifical degrees from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas and the Pontifical Gregorian University. He is the novice master, the director of formation, and the vocations director for his abbey. Join Deacon Charlie and Father Ambrose in this episode as they discuss living an authentic Catholic life through worship and liturgy, community life, and the use of technology, all while accompanying others on their journeys. We are in this together. And I think that every Catholic community, from every family's home to the places of business to all of these larger Catholic communities, that's really where this accompaniment begins. When was the last time I looked in my confrere's eyes while we were talking with each other at the dinner table? When did I actually look in his eyes and let him look into my eyes? It's something as simple as that, like a real moment of real human connection, which can just be absent from so much of human experience, right? This is Living the Call. Father Ambrose Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Deacon Charlie. It's so great to have you. You know, I, 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 this is a pre-monstratensian Friday. Okay. I, I don't, don't know, know if that you... really rhymes, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, like good. Taco Tuesday. <laughs> Exactly. Not quite like Taco Tuesday. We have no pee, no pee days in the week. So, you know, we did, we did our best. I was actually going to make that one of your questions at the end of the show was, you know, percentage of people in the Catholic world who know what premonstratensian means. And I, I, I would, I would guess it'd be a pretty small. Uh, yeah, probably less thing. than 1%, I would think. Yeah, that's, that's very I, few. Yeah. I would think so too. One of the things, I mean, I always love talking to Norbertines and so it's a privilege to be here with you. Um, for a number of different reasons, and I'm sure maybe some of them were the reasons why you were attracted to the order, but I always find conversations with Norbertines to be very edifying and very enriching. Mm-hmm. And I mean that sincerely. I haven't had a, a ton of interaction with with your order, but I do know some of your brothers, and every time I come in contact with them, I'm like, I'm left with something to think about and something to ponder. And so, Well, uh, praise God. You know, praise God. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, no, privilege, privilege. One of the things that I saw about you and kind of prepping for this, Father, was— um, I'm not exactly sure where you were, but I remember seeing some of your some of your YouTube videos. And um, one of the stories that you told, uh, which I thought was really, really interesting, was sort of the way that you were inspired into into this life. Right. And 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 for those who don't know, and you can talk more about this, but, you know, a canon regular, which is what the Pramonstratensi, what the Norbertines are, is kind of like a religious you're a priest, obviously, but you live in religious community. And so it's a is that a fair way to describe it? It's kind of like a, a bit of a hybrid. Exactly. I, th- I sometimes say that we're priests who live like monks, you know, so it's this, yeah, just like you said, it's the, the blending of priestly life and active ministry along with religious observance in a community of brothers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things you mentioned in this talk that I heard was, and, and uh, you know, God works over a series of things, so I'm sure it wasn't just a moment of, of inflection in this way, but one of the things that you recount was this sense of, you know, coming up the way you did, Catholic, et cetera, but then you go off to a trip to uh, to England, and I know you're a Rhodes Scholar. We'll get into some of that stuff, and you went to Oxford and all this other stuff, but but you get to this, you have this experience, a liturgical experience, where it's like stunningly beautiful, and where a lot of people might look at that and go like, wow, that's great, it's fulfilling, and I'm sure it was for you as well. You kind of got angry at it because it was such a a, a, a distance or a contrast 
from the way that you had experienced liturgy previously. And that was at least some portion of the nudging that led you into, in, into desiring a more, you know, kind of proximate experience with this like beauty of this liturgy and this experience that you were, that you were having. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an absolutely a good, a good sort of description of that particular mass, that particular experience I had that, as you said, was a part of a whole, a piece of a bigger picture. But, uh, knowing that I had already known the Norbertine order, I, I was coming to know the Norbertine order by the time that experience happened. And so I knew that canons regular are these liturgical creatures in the church, these priests who live this very liturgical life. And then seeing that um, beautiful mass, uh, maybe for the, the, those folks who have you know, heard that particular story, the mass was the new mass, the mass of Paul VI, John Paul II, in Latin, beautiful choir, beautiful vestments, beautiful organ, extraordinary preaching, uh, just very reverently celebrated and beautiful. And, and uh, it dawned on me, it struck me very powerfully that I had not seen that kind of liturgical beauty before mm. in my Catholic life. So I knew that if I was going to be a priest or if I was going to be a religious, it was going to have to be in some way that would capture that sense of liturgical beauty in the tradition of our faith. Did you, did you have um, coming up an experience where you got a chance to go to a variety of different parishes, or were you pretty stable coming up in the, in the church with a limited number of parishes? I was pretty stable in my home parish, uh, went to the Catholic school there in that parish, and, you know, so, so from kindergarten age— through high school, that was mostly my experience of Catholic life and liturgy. Mm. The, um, when I got into college, uh, I was dabbling around a little bit more in some other liturgical experiences, you know, the, even, even the cathedral in our diocese where Archbishop Chappie was, was um, presiding in those years. So I, I had some other, a little bit of a, an expanded vision by the time I, I went to England, but not much, to be mm. honest, not much. It was pretty meat and potatoes, ordinary parochial life, yeah. which is, I, and I, I don't mean to, to denigrate that. I, I think that my faith was nourished in that. And I, uh, it, it's not like that was, um, somehow bad or wrong. <laughs> and this other thing was, was good and, um, new, you know? Yeah, no, the reason I ask is really because, you know, I think of a diocese like Los Angeles, and I'm sure, you, I mean, you were talking about the Diocese of Denver, correct? The Archdiocese correct, of Denver. Correct, the Archdiocese of Denver. So, so the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, I don't know how it is in Denver, but here we've got, I think, something on the order of about 400 um, parishes, Wow, if I'm not mistaken. And you can have, you know, not vastly different, because I don't want anybody to think, and Father, just for the record, we have a number of folks who listen to the show across the, you know, the spectrum very devout people, very Catholic people, some folks who are on a journey, some folks who are not, not Catholic, some who are not Christian. So it's a, it's a, it's a broad swath of folks. Fine. But, That's but, um, but, you know, what, what I always tell people is, and, and I, I want to be very mindful about this because we have, uh, you know, there's, there's a prudent way to do this. And there's obviously the church's way of, of stability with respect to your canonical territories and the place where you should be going to mass, right? So there, there, there's that aspect of it. But I always find it really interesting of how how varied the experience can be, just like a garden variety Catholic. You know, you go to one parish, and here in LA, we've got 400. So you go to one parish, 
And then you go right down the street and you might have a very different um, or at least perceptibly different kind of experience, even if the parts might all look the same, right? Mm -hmm. So there's something about, um, I got, I got to travel a lot when I was a kid, so I had no choice but to experience mass life in very different settings. And that kind of set me up at the beginning to think like, oh, there's some variety here. So when I came later in life to understand the different rites of the church and the Eastern churches and all this other stuff, it kind of made more sense to me. But some of my, you know, other people that I've come in contact with, it was much more of a departure for them when, when they had this sort of like other experiences that th there was a lot more contrast, I guess, between them based on how they grew up or came up. Well, I think what, I think what remains true at whatever period we talk about liturgical life in the church, there's going to be a culture in a parish. And, and the, the, the people who are the stable members of that parish community are going to be the primary ones who form that culture. And I, I mean, even something simple, as simple as, you know, the way that we recite the rosary, you can go from one parish to another and just the little customs that happen in the parish community reciting it before or after mass or whatever that makes a big difference. And so I think that's probably always been true. You know, there's a kind of a, people want to look back to, you know, 75 years ago and say there was this uniformity to liturgical life in the church because mm. of the way the mass was that meant that you could go anywhere and you would experience exactly the same thing in every parish and every country. I just don't think that was true. I don't think that's ever been true. Uh, so I think what you're saying reflects something about the very um, enculturated in the sense of parish culture way that we live our lives as Catholics. And there's something mm. really beautiful about that, really important about that, which I think might be part of the reason why the church has always said, you know, insofar as it's possible, go to your parish in which you live. Because these are the people that you live with, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're your people. <laughs> they're your people. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, no question. And yet, you know, I, I, I look back with a lot of fondness uh, to my, my childhood. My, my dad was in charge of, uh, of the Latin American and Caribbean part of a bank. So every couple of years we moved around. I was born here, but kind of grew up in a variety of different countries. And I got, I got a chance to have that experience. And I always look fondly on that um, because I had these very different sort of enculturation moments, depending on the country that I was in and the communities that we, that we were worshiping with. But it did give me like a sense of the universality of the church, right? And that, that maybe, maybe now more so than ever, the proper way to understand kind of multicultural or, you know, the, the sort of the diverse makeup of, of, of the Catholic faith, I guess. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. Rather than trying to approach it like, we have some right way of being Catholic, exactly right way of being Catholic. And I want to impose that wherever I am mm. or look for precisely that wherever I might go. It just doesn't, I don't, that doesn't ring true to me. So I think that in that sense, the, the universality of the church really does reflect the variety of, of people's, as I said, parochial and um, local life. There's, that's just a really beautiful truth. So I think going back to, I mean, what happened to me there in England when I experienced that much, much more traditional kind of way of living a liturgical, a Catholic liturgical life, that touched for me, not just a preference, but also it resonated with um, who I am. Mm. 
And so I had to find a way of being that kind of a man in my priestly and religious life. But that's not to say that I ever thought that what I experienced there in that church was something that had to be reduplicated to every place else I might be or wherever else I might go. Um, yeah, you found you found it. Sense. Of course, it does. Yeah, I mean, I think you you found in it all the things which it is, which is you know beautiful and reverent and and all those different things. But at the same time, you also kind of discovered a little bit more about who you are, right? Which is this is this is something that resonates with me, and that doesn't mean that everyone is going to have the same response, or perhaps should. It does bring me to the to a subject. I'd love your take on it. I had um. Monsignor Eugene Morris on the show recently. I don't know if you yes, know him. I do know him, yes. Um, and we, we talked a lot about about this, and I'd be curious on your take because, you know, there seems to be some tension uh, now. And I, on some level, this has existed since, you know, since maybe the post-conciliar period began. But there seems to be some tension now. Maybe we're just seeing it more because of social media and that kind of thing about um, about liturgy and about how we should view it, think about it. And... I'm saddened by the tension, but I think it's sadder to ignore it and or sadder to pretend it's not there. Yes. So I just I just wonder what your take is on that in general. Yes, I'm glad you actually took the conversation in this direction here, Deacon Charlie, because as we were speaking previously about the the benefit, the beauty, the reality of that variety of enculturated or parochial experiences, the, the thought that was going parallel in my mind is that in fact, not all of that variety of experience is necessarily good. Yeah. <laughs> and that there yeah. has to be, there has to be some kind of a liturgical ideal that that reflects what it really means to worship God in spirit and in truth, mm. the way that he wants to be worshipped. And what we've seen in the post-conciliar period, I think, is the kind of um experimentation with that, which leaves us today in the middle of liturgical wars, and we can't pretend they don't exist. We are in a very difficult period of real and sometimes I mean, bloody in the metaphoric sense. Sure. Liturgical wars. It's absolutely true. I sometimes think there, there are more than one, there are more than one religion mm. <laughs> manifest in the kinds of degenerate lit liturgy that is out there. Mm. It doesn't, some of it I don't think is Roman Catholic. Mm. Now that's a pretty inflammatory thing to say, but I think that we can, we can get so far away from right worship that it actually takes us away from right religion and it takes mm. us away from tr the true faith. So I think you're right. We can't pretend that that's not happening and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Uh, so you as a, as a, you know, pastor of souls, right? And I'm sure, you know, spiritual direction, teaching, preaching, a variety of different settings where this actually uh, takes place. But just as a, for instance, how would you counsel someone? And let's take both of the, let's take some, maybe caricatures, but just for the sake of the conversation, somebody who is of the mind that if it's not, if father is not wearing, you know, this uh, fiddleback, and if, you know, the incense isn't done just so, and if somebody forgets a word in the confidior, somehow the mass is not real. And then on the other side, let's take a person who believes that, you know, all this stuffiness and rules and rigidity and, 
you know, we, we need to have, you know, people dancing in the aisle and we need to have, you know, 87 extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and everybody and the tabernacle needs to be in the parking lot. Okay. These are caricatures <laughs> for the sake of making the point. I don't believe maybe either one of those is real, but just to make the point, you're counseling either of these people. What's your approach to each about their perspective? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's great. I think that each of those uh, caricatured perspectives shares something in common. And I think I would probably begin to counsel each of those caricatured perspectives like this. I would say, where is it in your articulation of what is important in the liturgy or what, where is it that your preference is superior to what the church is asking of us? Mm. So does the church say that the priest must be wearing a fiddleback chasuble and that you may not omit any words from the confidio for the mass to be valid? Does the church say that? Is that true? Mm. And if not, then why are you so insistent that that be true? Mm. That I think it's the same. Uh, I would I would call that uh, clinging to one's own opinion in a um, in a quasi Protestant. Not to be not to, to denigrate Protestants, but you get my point. Of course, you're basically you're you're leaving the the union with the church because of your preference. Same thing with the person who wants to have the liturgical dancing and 87 extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Your prep. Does the church want that? Is that what the church wants? And if not, then why are you clinging to that? So mm. I think I, I probably wouldn't be quite so blunt as I just said that, but it would be important to, to help that soul who needs to be saved and who needs to come to not the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ and who needs to grow in holiness and interior freedom. Where is it that they are being stifled in their growth in holiness and interior freedom because of their clinging to their own opinion? My guess would be that it's probably in both cases, some kind of fear. Mm. And so as a pastor of souls, I would, I would probably at some point after some conversations, invite them to talk about what are you afraid of? What yeah. are you afraid of? Why are you afraid that, that, um, that the mass might not be valid if you leave out a word of the confidio? Or why are you afraid that it's not, it's not really pleasing to God unless there's dancing in the aisles? So in other words, how are, you yeah. going to, how are you going to die to yourself in the way that Jesus wants you to die to yourself in order to serve him? Amen. And there it is. I mean, it's a heck of a starting point, but I think you're, you're, you're kind of illustrating a bigger point, which is there's a certain type of, I mean, I love the way you framed it, which is, you know, sort of what does the church want? And the church is many things. And part of it is teasing out that understanding, you know, is it, it's of course, you know, it's a body, it's a hierarchy, it's a structure, it's an organization, but it's also supernatural. It's the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the sacrament of salvation. I mean, so many different things, but, but, um, what does God want, right? How does God want to be worshiped? What yes. is God's and what's the, what is the wisdom, beauty, and the different things that he's trying to transmit to us in that? And if what we're doing is kind of putting ourselves or our own preferences, let's say above that, in a way, and this may even be more controversial, but in a way, it's a kind of form of idolatry, right? No, because it's not, it's not a form. Of, that is idolatry. That's what it is. You're absolutely right, Deacon Charlie. That's absolutely right. This is, I think, the crux of the matter in the liturgical wars is that, is it, is it about me mm. or is it about God? And in fact, <laughs> real, real Roman Catholic 
doctrine, and that is the fullness of the truth, which is our holy Catholic faith, teaches us that God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. That's what the whole, that's what the whole um, beautiful unfolding of salvation history is about. Why, why do we want people to come to know the truth of their faith? Why? Why do we want people to be baptized? Why? So that they can worship God in spirit and in truth. That's why. What, is, what do we get by being baptized and being incorporated into the body of Christ in the fullness of that body, which is the Roman Catholic Church? What do we get from that? Salvation, of course, and also the ability to worship God, to praise Him, because that's what we're created for, yeah. right? A hundred percent. I think all of this, too, um, you know, goes to our ability or inability, I guess, depending on how you look at it now, to kind of transmit and communicate these truths to other generations. I mean, obviously, you do it individually with, you know, people, parishioners, folks who visit the abbey, the monastery where you live, et cetera, maybe through media and a variety of other means. But, you know, generationally, I think we also need to take stock at how well we are transmitting these things to to other generations. And I, and I feel that in many cases, well, maybe in most cases, we're not really doing a good job of 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 doing that, of of communicating, you know, these the, these eternal truths and these sort of proper orientations, you know, to people coming up. I think a lot about younger people, because I tend to, I'm, I minister in that area. My work relates to younger demographics, et cetera, but about like the, the, just the brief conversation we've had so far, what are the avenues, places, ways, means, et cetera, that this kind of, uh, you know, conversation is getting into those, those spheres. Yes. I, I, well, to answer your question briefly, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know how it's getting to those spheres. <laughs> I, I, I guess I have some ideas about how it might, but I mean, there are places you look around the church, you know, why is it that, that the focus missionaries on university campuses are so, are seem to be so successful in drawing people into a community on their university campus where they take care of each other, they, where they pray together. Why is that happening? Mm. Well, obviously, community has something has everything to do with it for young people. They 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 feel isolated. I think much of the time by the by the technology that surrounds them. So, where there are places where they can feel like they are loved by other people, where they can love other people, then they want they 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 long for that. So that's one way. And then what's happening liturgically, doctrinally, catechetically in that context? Um. I think anything we can do to help young people and old people, help all people that you asked about young people, to realize that there is a much bigger world than simply me. Yeah. Then, you know, I mean, what, what is liturgy? Well, again, this is going back to the liturgical question. I grew up, I think, mostly hearing from the pulpit that um, Jesus loves me. That's really important to know that. But in a way, it was, it was always about me, right? I mean, if people don't feel good about their experience of Holy Mass, then like, well, why go? Mm. Because it's about me anyway. So if, I, if I'm not getting anything out of it, the young people say, well, then why would I go every Sunday? Well, how do we get them to get over that egocentric approach to life to say, well, it doesn't matter how I feel about it because this is about giving God praise, 
It's about making him the center of my life. And I think that that um, community orientation that young people are longing for is a way, a means to get us, to get them and to get us beyond ourselves and concerned with other people, with concern with the other, ultimately concerned with God. But um, again, I guess it comes back to that dying to oneself. I think the other thing that makes Focus successful, too, is this uh, notion of a really lived-out accompaniment. Right? In, in fact, in one of your talks, which I really loved, what, I forget which one it was, but you talked about this notion of you're the answer, like you're the, you know, you're the one that's like the solve for this thing, which I always think is great because we tend to look externally, like how's this going to get fixed and look mm -hmm. at all this trouble and <laughs> look at all this crisis. And a lot of times, you know, God's calling up, well, all times God is calling us to live out our part in that salvific plan. And we can discover that, you know, potentially in this way. So I, 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 lo I love that idea of, you know, us taking that responsibility. But I, I, I look at focus and I also think, because I've met a number of focus missionaries, I talked one just recently, and, you know, there's this, this sense of real accompaniment too, right? Yes. A sense of like, I'm getting steeped, in, I'm, I'm, going, I'm rolling up my sleeves, I'm going to go into the foxhole with you. I, I, I'm re it's relatable to, it's not like I'm coming in from the outside from some other planet, some other country. I don't have your lived experience. I'm not your age. And even though I might have, be very well-meaning, I'm not going to touch you, communicate with you in that as, as, as relevant a way as if I'm really kind of in the trenches with you and I'm accompanying with you. And I, and I kind of participate in a way in that same lived experience. And I think that's also part of it, which kind of ties to you're the answer thing. It's like, well, mm -hmm you know, roll up your sleeves and kind of get in there and, and be that bridge, walk with those people as they're kind of trying to search through things and grapple with things. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely true. It's why, I mean, a religious community like mine seems to be doing so well by way of, you know, lots of people coming and joining us. And, and you look around the country, all of the religious communities that are thriving, it's because of this, because the, the people who join there, they feel like they find in those religious communities like you're describing focus to be a, a secular kind of community where these are brothers and sisters who are willing to be with me, to accompany me. They are, they are, we are in this together. And I think that um, every Catholic community from the family in every, every family's home to the places of business, to all of these larger Catholic communities, that's really where this accompaniment begins. I think sometimes, you know, when was the last time I looked in my confrere's eyes while we were talking with each other at the dinner table? Yeah. When did I actually look in his eyes and let him look into my eyes? It's something as simple as that, like a real moment of real human connection, which can just be absent from so much of human experience, right? And it takes mindfulness, doesn't it? Where to, you know, I can, I can, think, I can imagine that spouses probably have to struggle with this through their whole marriage. You know, well, when did I actually listen to my wife <laughs> you know, and really listen to her or yeah. have her really listen to me? So that, 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 that's, it seems to me, where the Holy Spirit invites us to die to ourselves and to become an icon of Jesus Christ for the other. For the other. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, that, that grows into a community like a religious community, like a monastery such as mine, or a community on a university campus that focus represents, for example. Or, as I said, even just a family. You know, that we have, we have really wonderful families who come to our monastery. They're, 
monastic life tends to become a kind of a light on a hill or at its best. And then people come flocking to that light from all around insofar as they're able, whether it's for the sacraments or for the worship of God in mm. you know, liturgical sense or for counsel or for exorcism and deliverance ministry for whatever, right? For instruction and really uh, a monastery or a priest or a deacon or a parish church, we can't fix or we're not meant to fix all of the communities that those people represent, but we're meant to nourish them in such a way that they will then become an instantiation of the body of Christ where they are. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. My brother is a, is a, is a religious, he's a Benedictine priest. And I definitely get the notion of the light on the hill, the kind of, you know, lighthouse sort of beacon that, um, monastic community can, can be. I, I know that I feel that personally when I do retreats and things and I've gone to his monastery, this sort of sense of kind of leaving the world and entering this sort of new place. But it is, if I really think about what it is that I enjoy the most, it's kind of what you just touched on, which is when I talk to the brothers in his case, and this is almost without exception, there is a sense that like, oh, you're like really paying attention to what I'm saying. <laughs> and, and by the way, I do this all the time. Father, I just got into a, a little, you know, I, I had to do a mea culpa with my wife yesterday because she walked into my office and she was telling me something and I was writing an email and I just had that one sentence left and I want, I preferred to try to get the sentence out rather than turn to her and actually look at her. And then I went back later and I, I apologize because I reflected on it, but we do this kind of stuff all the time. And just giving that person that moment, which is what I feel happens in the case of going to my brother's monastery of like, you know, meeting those, and that's not the only place in the world it happens, but I'm just using it to make the point that you, there's such power in that. Mm. There's such power in that precisely because it is that instantiation, right? It is living that moment, living the present, which is the real time that we have. Um, and, 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 and something happens when we do that, which then when you turn your attention and think of the enemy of our souls, you can kind of make sense of all the distractions that we have. Well, why would we want to have this moment of connection? Let's try to mess that up as much as we can with screens and distractions and all these different things. So you can kind of see the strategy by understanding how important the other thing is when it actually occurs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, like you said, I mean, you, you reflected on that experience with your wife where you, you saw that opportunity, a missed opportunity, and then you went and apologized. I, I see this all the time with my own conference. I, I spent the last 13 years of my priesthood mostly giving spiritual direction to the young men who come and join us, you know, as their kind of their spiritual father. And I'm always, you know, beating my chest with the, the fact that I'm not listening as well as I ought, mm. you know? So I mean, that's, I think you're right. Living in that present moment, entering into it and really giving the other the attention they deserve because they are a beloved ch child of God and they, they are Christ for you and you're a Christ for them. That's really, it's a real challenge actually, isn't it? I mean, that's, it is. that's thoroughly living life. Everybody talks about, you know, when they meet a saint, I'm sure you've met saints before. People mention all the time, you know, I shook, whatever, I shook John Paul II's hand or I met Mother Teresa. And he's a saint. Yeah. He's a saint, you know? And without exception, they say that person, that man or that woman, looked at me like I was the only person in the universe because they're that's just basically what they're doing, isn't it? That nothing else matters except you right now, because mm. I am 
I am spending time with you. And that's beautiful. That's holiness, I think. When we're able to do that. I think it also is, you know, the, the, the fruit of a well-formed soul in the sense that they recognize that nothing is accidental, right? So if God deigned it from the beginning of time that you're going to be sitting in front of that person at wherever you are, like, maybe that's pretty important for you to pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it, yes, I remember. Yes. It makes my, life so, it makes life so gripping, doesn't it? It does. So gripping, like every moment is pregnant with that kind of providential import. <laughs> It's awesome. It's, it's amazing, right? <laughs> so like, why wouldn't you want to pay full attention to that? But so I think there's testament to that. I remember sitting one time, this is early, my brother, um, we, were, we were born Catholic and raised Catholic, but there was a period of time where we kind of drifted me more significantly than him in the spiritual sense, but both we, but we both drifted religiously. Um, and you know, there was a period of time where he was very much into the, into Eastern, uh, non-Christian Eastern mysticism, right? A lot of like Buddhism and that kind of stuff. Um, but I remember when he was coming out of that, actually through discovery of the Christian mystics, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, as he was coming out of that, I remember having a conversation with him one time and we were sitting down and he told me, he's like, Charlie, you're the most important person in the world. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. That's nice. He's like, no, 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 you're not understanding what I'm saying. You're the most important person in the world. And when, when I get up here and I leave and I go have another conversation with somebody else, they're the most <laughs> important person in the world, right? This sense of like, just recognizing that moment. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. Out of the, curiosity, what, what monastery did your brother join? Where is he? he he's at uh, St. Andrews. Oh, okay, in, that's uh, good. Yeah, up in uh, Valley. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a nice, it's, it's a little desert area and it's, it's very kind of unassuming and it doesn't have, you know, a lot of the, the sort of beautiful architecture that, that even he would prefer. Actually, in fact, they're about to break ground on a new, uh, a new church, which is, which is hopefully going to be in, in more of that style, but it's a very humble little place, but, but a really great, great community. And, um, and he's, you know, there's been a lot of fruit born up there. I was actually going to ask you, Father, do, are there permanent deacons in the, in the Norbertines? I have met a few. Yes, we have. Um, well, our order historically is canons who are priests, correct, and lay brothers. In fact, in the original, in, you know, nine hundred years ago, many monasteries would have many more lay brothers than they would priest canons. And of course, we have cloistered nuns who are members of the order too, and still are. And since the conciliar reform, I've met a few permanent deacons in a few of our abbeys. There's one in our abbey in Innsbruck, Austria, I know of. Um, I'm not thinking of any others at the, at the moment. So it's possible. It's possible. There might be one in one of our abbeys in France as well, a permanent deacon. So there's deacon. not like a provision against it necessarily. No, certainly not. Like certainly yeah. not. I just don't think it's very common because yeah. if religious life is, um, you know, our life is a celibate life, I think most of the men who are going to be deacons are going to be transitional deacons on the way to the priesthood. For sure. That makes sense. Well, there's also a little bit of a weird demographic cliff. I know you've talked in the past about demographic cliffs in general for the church, but I was reflecting on that comment um, from another one of your your, your videos, but uh, that there's a bit of a demographic cliff in the American diaconate as well. <laughs> and I, I've talked about this and, you know, but I don't know if it's people think it's urgent enough to do anything about it, but, you know, something like... Um, I think it's 50%—no, I'm sorry, 95% of deacon, permanent deacons in the U.S. are over 50, and something like 70% are in their 60s and 70s. I mean, wow. it, is, it is a very 
And I, and I don't, you know, where, whereas the universal law of the church is that a man should not be ordained to the permanent diaconate before 35, right? So you've got this kind of huge gap between the sort of, you know, universal ecclesial minimums and then, or canonical minimums and the, the kind of practice, I guess, that we have in, in the U.S. And I know that's a small segment of this broader demographic cliff that you talk about, but it's yes. still nevertheless in there. I have a question for you about that. To be, my, my father, by the way, my father is a permanent deacon in the Archdiocese oh, of Denver. He was nice. ordained. A, he was ordained a deacon a month before I. I was ordained a transitional deacon. We were seminarians at the same time. That's kind of oh, funny. that's cool. But um, yeah. I have a question for you about that. It seems to me that at least in the American experience of a permanent diaconate, most of the men who enter formation for the permanent diaconate are already significantly over thirty-five. Anyway, I mean, it seems to be kind of a second career or after an adult, a sort of deep adult conversion after married life and maybe even after the children have grown and left the house. So isn't that true that it's going to be an older group anyway? That is true, but I think the, you know, devil's in the details on that one, Father, because I know plenty of men who have approached formation programs interested in the diaconate that have been turned away because their kids might be young or, you know, they get sort of the, why don't you focus on your career when your kids get older, come back. And if the Lord's still calling you, I mean, like literally that kind of level of advice. So what I wonder is how many of those men who do enter after retirement have previously tried or been interested in it or thought and been dissuaded from that, whether directly or indirectly from pursuing it. I can tell you, I get approached all the time, all the time by guys in their thirties going, Hey, you know what? I've been thinking about the diaconate, but like, I'm not old enough. Right. I'm like, uh, no, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. it depends who you ask, I guess, ask your Bishop if you're old enough, but, but the law of the church is this. Now it's applied in a variety of different ways. So I'm always careful in how I talk to, to guys who approach me with this question when they're younger, because you don't want to give somebody the impression like go chase this down. Like it's a career promotion, but you also don't want to dissuade someone who the Lord might be calling to explore those things. And yet there is this sense, like, well, it's like a retirement thing. Like, I do that after I retire. And and I, I don't know where that comes from. I asked Monsignor Eugene Morris because he was the vicar of deacons for St. Louis. And interestingly, and, you know, maybe a moment of vulnerability, he actually said, you know, he he said, I, might, I may have been part of that problem. Mm-hmm. He literally said that. He goes, because I would definitely look at guys who came and said, and they've got four or five, six-year-old kids and said, like, you might be too young. This is high stress and whatever, whatever. So, but he says like on reflection, now I look at that time and maybe I could have done things differently. So I, I don't, I think this is a nuanced thing. Yes, but, um, I, I think so too. And I also think that I don't know that we really know, I could be completely wrong about this, but I'll just say it anyway. I don't know that we really know quite what to do with permanent deacons anyway, in a lot yeah, of dioceses. Right. I, I don't, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a clerical creature in the, in the American church, at least that has a hard time finding a home. Some dioceses oh, yeah. have a very robust diaconate training program, formation program, and a lot of permanent deacons. Some dioceses and bishops just simply aren't interested. They don't, they don't really cultivate it. They don't really know what to do with deacons. They're not. So I, I think that there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, question marks over this particular vocation in the church. But um, you brought it up with, with reference to the demographic cliff and it is, I think, also representative of that, that, you know, 25 years from now, realistically, there's just going to be many fewer deacons, permanent deacons than there are now. That's just true. So I don't know what, I don't know if there's a solution to that. I mean, 
I don't know. Yeah. Well, what about the broader kind of demographic cliff uh, situation? I know that you posited not solutions, but, you know, sort of ways of viewing this because the truth of it is, and I, I actually just talked about this recently because, you know, the demographic cliff, some would say we're actually already falling over it, right? We've already kind of like, we're on the way down. We're not like we're headed towards the edge. We're like already over it. Because when you look at things like, um, you know, sacramental matrimony, baptism, rate of confirmation, like all these stats are pretty down for the last 20 years. Um, but, you know, that's happening too, right? Where the, the, the church in the, in, in, the Amer- in the U.S. seems to be contracting. The Latino population is adding to its ranks, but it's not offsetting enough the, the, the total decline. So, like, what do we do about that? Right. Well, in my um, more, I suppose, my more kind of radical and rebellious days or looking at a problem like that and sort of thinking, what, what are we supposed to do? I very often am inclined to say, we shouldn't pretend that we can fix that, nor should we try to fix that. What does Jesus Christ want us to do to build his church? He mm-hmm. wants us to form authentic communities of uh, authentic communities where the love of God is shared, where the sacraments are celebrated, where God is worshiping in spirit and in truth with right worship. He wants us to do that. I don't think we should pretend that maintaining Catholic institutions is a sign of the uh, vitality of the church. Mm. Just because a diocese has, let's say, a hundred Catholic schools, doesn't mean that those are really Catholic schools. Just because there are, you know, 400 parishes in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles doesn't mean that all of those parishes need to exist or should exist. And again, I'm not saying that we should just close half the parishes, but you get my point is that if it's a real Catholic community, a real Christian community, God will bless it and, and, and give it growth and fruitfulness. If it's not an authentic Catholic place or institution, why should we try to keep it open? Mm. So that's, I mean, that sounds, that might sound kind of brutal, but I think it's true because I mean, you say, well, you know, there's that, there's that funny, um, that funny joke about Pope St. John the 23rd, when someone asked him how many people work in the Vatican and he said about half of them. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. And I, I would say, you know, how many, how many, you know, Catholics fill, fill the, the parishes on Sunday say, well, maybe a quarter of them. Yeah. It's true. I mean, the people who are actually there, it's one of the terrifying things that I experienced as a priest, as a newly ordained priest 14 years ago in going out. I don't often now, right now in my, my, my life, my priestly life has been mostly inside the Abbey community and forming, forming the young priests and religious here, but going out occasionally to a parish to celebrate Holy mass or uh, yeah. And the feeling I, I still get this feeling all the time. I'm not sure that the people out there are actually believing. Mm. You know, the, the people who come up to receive Holy Communion, I'm distributing Holy Communion. I don't get the impression that they have any real faith in the real presence of our Lord as they're receiving Holy Communion. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, it's, it, been born, it's been borne out by the data, Father. I mean, that's the reason we just launched a National Catholic uh, a Eucharistic Revival was because the Pew study found 70-some-odd percent of Catholics didn't, either didn't believe or disagreed. So, right, I mean, right. so then you think, well, the people who are showing up in the pews, 
And already that's very few compared, compared to the number who call themselves Catholics, right? How many of them are authentically transformed Catholics trying to live a faithful Christian life? How many of them are there? I think it's a minority. So to solve that problem, what do we do? Well, I think rather than try to keep every Catholic school open, rather than try to keep every parish open, rather than try to just look at numbers as an indicator of the vitality of the church or institutions as an indicator of the vitality of the church, I think it has to be in the authenticity of the lived Christian experience in whatever community we're talking about. That's the indicator. It's a big insight right there. Yep. So it's funny. I just got a, I, I just received from, from my abbot a few months ago, a new assignment where we're opening a new house, a new foundation in Springfield, Illinois, with the hope that that becoming, that that, that becomes its own independent abbey of our order one day. And the work that we're going to be doing there is a, an evangelization institution um, to help teach the Catholic faith to the Catholic school teachers, to teach the Catholic faith to the religious education instructors in the parishes, maybe eventually to work on a diaconate formation program, other things like that. The bishop, Bishop Paprocki, has a lot of great ideas. And uh, God is full of wonderful and sometimes hilarious surprises. If you would have asked me six months ago, <laughs> what to do with Catholic schools, I would have said, just shut them all down. If they're not Catholic, mm-hmm. why bother? Let people homeschool their children, let people find the faith in, in their families, in their parishes, and send their children to good schools that are, don't have to call them Catholic schools. And now, of course, now that this is going to be my work in Springfield, I'm rethinking that a little bit. Yeah. You know, how do we re-Catholicize institutions that have lost the Catholic faith? Yeah, I mean, you, I, I just think of you're the answer, right? <laughs> when I when I think about what you just said, and I think you do have to start. I mean, look, th- this insight about like not necessarily having to to stand up all these things as a measure of the fruitfulness or lack thereof of the church, I think, is something we definitely don't hear enough of. I hear the opposite, which is like, look at all the people who went through the confirmation program, and look at all the whatever you know, whatever the metric is, but. And you look at the other end of it is who's living an integrated Catholic life? And the answer is sadly very few people. And so there is some, a lot of wisdom in what you said there. But I do think that this idea of going back up to the waterfall and let's, let's, let's start at the top and how are we uh, enabling, empowering, facilitating, equipping, forming, you know, the people who are then going out into the world to kind of transmit all this stuff. There's a ton of work that can be done there. And then the amplification effect thereafter becomes, you know, greater. Um, At least that's how I, you know, view it standing here. So I'd be very bullish on the kind of thing that you're thinking about doing in Illinois. Yes. A kind of a force multiplier, force multiplier sort of perspective on evangelization. Right. But, But that's true for, I think every, every believer can do that. Every believer can do that. If someone who's, you know, listening to our conversation here today is, has a family, well then, Love your children or love your spouse, love, live your authentic Christian life. And those people will benefit from that in such a way that then they can share that love of God around with them. Right. And, and yes, I think, yeah, the answer starts with you is absolutely right. Mm. Father, I know we're getting ready to get to our last segment here because we've got to get you on your way. Um, I am curious for people who may not be familiar or as familiar with the Norbertines, with the Premonstratensian order, 
who may not live in Southern California, who want to, you know, get, find out more, be more in touch, kind of learn what, what's, what's kind of like your first thing out of the bag when somebody hits you that way and says like, tell me more, what would you say? Well, I would say in this, you know, internet age, we have a pretty active website and, and we try to do a lot of online uh, help. So, so, you know, homilies, podcasts, there's a lot that you can find on the St. Michael's Abbey website. But uh, there's also, of course, visiting the Abbey, as you said, people who are in Southern California come and, come and see us, come and pray with us, come and live our life with us. The, there are Norbertine Abbeys. There are four of them around the country. So you might, uh, if someone is in Wisconsin or in the Philadelphia area, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, they might tap into the Norbertine community there in their region. And I think that plugging into what we're doing online at St. Michael's Abbey is a good start. You know, we're trying to grow that apostolate too, you know, touching mm -hmm. people, touching people through the, all of these distracting means of communications that keep us from looking each other in the eye. Well, <laughs> but, it, 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 but, it, but it is the, it is the mission field though, in a weird way, right? So it, it's, it's again, you can see the way that it's being used against us, but is there a way to baptize and Christianize it? And that's been our heritage for 2000 years. That's right. That's right. We have to take th these tools, which might be invented by the devil and turn them on their heads so that we become victorious through them. Right. No question. hundred percent. That's well, what Adam did. That's what, that's what uh, our Lord did. The new Adam with the, the, the tree of the cross, you know, the, the tree was the cause of our fall. And so the Lord turned that into the, the sign of our, the, the means of our victory. And the brazen serpent in the desert too. I mean, there's yes. so many, there's so much of that, that kind of perfecting and fulfilling and kind of giving us the fullness of what that thing was a shadow of. It's what St. Paul calls it, right? The shadows of, of the Old Testament now kind of fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So yes. that's, that's our, that's our heritage. We've got to carry that forward. Yes. Um, Father, what a great privilege to to have you spend a few minutes with us today. Like I said, you did not disappoint. You you know, Norbertine interactions are always, you know, fulfilling and deep and enriching. So uh, nice work on that. And we do invite, and we'll add to the show notes of this episode, the resources and links that you articulated there so people can, um, uh, can find and access that information. So I really do want to thank you for the privilege of spending time with us today. Well, thank you, Deacon Charlie. This has been a real, a real, uh, pleasure to, to spend this last hour with you, which didn't seem like an hour at all. So thank goes, you. And thank you for your good work for the kingdom too. It goes by quick. Yeah. Thanks be to God for that. It's a, it's a pleasure. All right, father, are you ready to play then? Wait, what? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So question number one, this is a first time ever father. So this is a fill in the blank joke question. Okay. okay? So fill in the blank joke question. A Dominican and a Jesuit walk into a bar. Now, I know you were instructed in early life by Jesuits, so you're the guy for this one, right? So a Dominican and a Jesuit walk into a bar, and a guy having a drink at the bar greets them. After some small talk, the guy asks them about themselves. The Dominican says, I'm a Dominican. Our order was founded by Dominic de Guzman, a Spanish priest in the 13th century, to put down the Albigensian heresy. Then the Jesuit says, I'm a Jesuit. Our order was founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola, also a Spanish priest in the 16th century, to put down the Protestant heresy. The man takes all this in, looks at both of them, and then inquires which of these two orders is better. After a long pause, the Dominican speaks up and says, blank. 
Have you heard this joke before, Father? I have, I've heard this joke before. Shall I, give you the, <laughs> shall I give you the right answer to this joke? He says, yes. have you, have, he says, well, have you ever met an Albigensian? That's right. <laughs> have you run, so, in, yes. have you run into any Albigensians lately? <laughs> yes. I love that. Yes. I love that. That's such a great joke. And you have to know a little bit of, uh, you know, Christian history for that one to make some sense, but it is really funny. It's um, a good joke. And the, and, and the Jesuits, we love you guys. Come on. Don't don't uh, take it personally. All right. So uh, question number two, you're batting a thousand, Father. Great job. All right. Question number two. This current day American prelate, and for those who don't know what that is, that's a bishop. This American bishop hails originally from your hometown, Denver, but now serves the people of God in Minnesota. He's an excellent pastor, formator, theologian, yes. speaker, advocate on a number of Catholic social fronts, and now has the distinction of leading the USCCB's National Eucharistic Revival. He is, of course, Father Bishop Andrew Cousins. Yes. Right? Who, who by the way, has also been on this show. Wow, but that's what, great. But, but what many people don't know about His Excellency, Father, is despite the fact that he's spoken about this publicly, is that during his college years, he was blank. He was roommates with Father Alphonsus Hermes, who is now a Norbertine canon of St. Michael's Abbey here in Orange County, California. So he was roommates with one of my confreres. Beautiful. And you get actually an extra credit point for that because that was not the original answer that I was looking for. Really? I didn't actually I didn't actually know that. No, I, I was thinking of something else that people don't know about him that he's made public, but people don't know. Nevertheless. Okay. Well, what was that, Deacon Charlie? He was a Benedictine. That- I know that. That was that he was arrested multiple <gasps> times during college and actually served yes, jail yes, time yes, okay. on two occasions yes. for civil disobedience and pro-life ministry. Yes, for protesting abortion. Yes, that's right. So that one, in fact, I was at the Napa Institute conference a few weeks back and the person who's kind of running the day-to-day on the revival, Tim Glenkowski, uh, he didn't know that. And so me and the bishop were chatting about the show we had just recorded and he was like, are you what for real so so uh so yeah so this is even though he's talked about this many many times but nevertheless people don't uh don't know it all right father you're putting me to shame because you are uh have a perfect score so uh, this is question number three i don't know if that that last one counts actually i didn't really get it right you know but i think that's extra credit though because you (laughs) actually came up with something people didn't know that actually ties in beautifully to the show all right so question number three and there's usually a time a time machine question, Father. So there's a time machine question here. You get to travel forward in time okay. to Rome, a place I know you're very familiar with, to Rome in the year 2765. Wow. The, 20, okay. The Pope that year is Pope Augustine, named in honor of the great North, North African saint and in keeping with his own African heritage. In fact, he's the seventh consecutive African Pope due at least in part to the outsized growth of the Catholic Church on the African continent, which in 2765 is nearly 75% of the total Catholic population on Earth, Father. Now, you get to meet the Pope, and the Holy Father asks you, you are the answer, asks you to lead a mission beyond the African continent to bring the gospel to far-flung and spiritually desolate places like Europe and the United States. You accept the mission, and after some time of discernment, you return to the Vatican to share with the Pope your missional plan. What father is that plan? That plan is to establish canonries, priests living in common, to worship God with with correct Catholic worship, 
and to pray the Liturgy of the Hours through the day and through the night in order to show the people in those mission territories what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. Mm. Amen. Good answer. That's uh, all three in a row. Nice work, Father. Good job. And in all seriousness, Father, I'm going to ask you to give uh, me and our audience a blessing, but thank you so much for stopping by. What a privilege to have thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Deacon Charles. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the gifts you pour out upon us, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who inspires all of our thoughts and inspires all of our conversation. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to pour out that same Spirit upon the families and into the hearts of all of the people who listen and tune in to Deacon Charlie's broadcast. And we ask you, Blessed Mother, to spread your mantle of protection over all of us and to help us to grow in holiness and wisdom. Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, our Holy Fathers, St. Robert and Augustine, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that blessing. And if you've been blessed by this conversation, that means it's time to subscribe. Please share this episode with someone that you love, someone you can inspire through this great conversation. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.